W.E.B. Du Bois showed through his studies that, like people everywhere, black Americans were shaped by their history, their living conditions, and their education. He then reasoned that if given equal opportunities as their white counterparts, they would learn as quickly and could achieve as much as anybody else. Though many didn't agree with this, many scholars around the world welcomed and accepted his findings. He would go on to give speeches and write articles that presented blacks and whites as equal human beings. Unfortunately, his efforts had little effect on the world around him during his time. Segregation and racism was still prevalent in those days, and though his books were on the shelves of public libraries, Southern libraries wouldn't even let him inside the door due to his skin color. Once, Du Bois was invited to speak before members of Congress, but he couldn't ride in a whites-only train to get there. Inequality was all around him, but he had hope, and he wrote largely about both. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, race, and change. I'm your host, Jason Nemore Hardin. Join us as we delve into the life of W.E.B. Du Bois and the crisis. not, and yet you are. Your thoughts, your deeds, above all, your dreams still live." End quote. Born William Edward Burghardt Du Bois in Great Barrington, Massachusetts on February 23, 1868, he would later be known as W.E.B. Du Bois. However, during his childhood, he was simply known as Willie. The American Civil War had only ended three years prior to his birth, and as a consequence, the country was still undergoing tremendous changes, which seems apt considering the changes Willie would bring with him. Now, after his father Alfred left him and his mother Mary in 1870, when he was just two years old, the pair moved into Mary's parents' house. Mary worked hard to support her family, and although they were poor, Willie generally considered his childhood a happy one. Smart, fast, and athletic, he was a leader among the boys in his small town. His teachers took a liking to him, considering him a promising pupil full of wit and intelligence. At the age of 12, his mother suffered a stroke which left her unable to work which in turn left him in a position where he was forced to work a part-time job in order to make ends meet for the family. Although the North was relatively integrated compared to Southern states given that he attended an integrated school, the fact that he did not have all the same opportunities as his white friends was not lost on him. Now, despite this, he continued to work hard and graduated from high school with top grades. At age 16, he had his heart set on attending Harvard University, a reality that was clearly out of financial reach for his family as they didn't have the funds to pay for such an education. He then spent a year working construction to earn money for school. Now that combined with money donated from neighbors, he was able to attend Fisk University, a historically black college in Nashville, Tennessee, from 1885 to 1888. 
But being located in Tennessee, a southern state, his family worried about sending him there, where there were, of course, strict segregation laws. Now, blacks and whites were kept apart and treated differently. Nevertheless, Willie decided to take advantage of the opportunity to attend college. So he packed his belongings and headed south. While in the south, he experienced Southern racism firsthand, which at the time encompassed Jim Crow laws, bigotry, suppression of black voting, and lynchings. Now, upon receiving his bachelor's degree from Fisk, he made it to Harvard after all as he was offered a scholarship. He studied history and sociology, becoming a cum laude graduate in 1890. Additionally, he went on to earn his master's from Harvard in 1891. Now, it was during his years at Harvard that Du Bois developed his theory that racism was a consequence of ignorance. Thus, for many years to come, he would attempt to educate white Americans about black people with the intention of proving that black people were not inferior, as many whites believed. He was convinced that if the United States offered all of its people true equal rights and a good education, the result would be increased success for the entire nation. In 1895, Du Bois completed his studies, becoming the first black American to receive an advanced degree from Harvard University, now known as a Ph.D. He was one of the most highly educated Americans of his day, but that didn't mean that any quote-unquote white university would hire him. After some time, he finally found a job teaching Latin and Greek at Wilberforce, a small university for black Americans in Ohio. He took the job at Wilberforce not because he intended on working his whole life teaching at a university, but because he had to earn a living. Perhaps it was other forces that brought him there, because it was there that he met and married his first wife, a student named Nina Gomer. Still, he had much greater ambition concerning what he wanted to do with his education. In essence, he wanted to dedicate himself to achieving a better life for black Americans. With Nina, he returned to the South in 1897 to teach history at Atlanta University in Georgia. Now, the university asked him to conduct research about black Americans, and he took this to be the perfect opportunity to prove through scientific research that blacks were not inferior to whites. The following year, in January 1898, he wrote the essay, The Study of the Negro Problems, from the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science. Now, in this essay, he challenges the question he would later pose in his 1903 book, The Souls of Black Folk, Essays and Sketches, namely, How Does It Feel to Be a Problem? Fast forward five years later, just so happened the same time his daughter, Nina Yolanda Du Bois, was born, The Souls of Black Folk was published to varying success, though it, without a doubt, made an impact. Daily newspaper The Nashville Banner issued a warning of The Souls of Black Folk, writing, This book is dangerous for the Negro to read, for it will only incite discontent and fill his imagination with things that do not exist or things that should not bear upon his mind. Which one could argue seems more like a reason to read it than not to read it. Now, Du Bois was not afraid to attack the ideas of others. Case in point, 
One essay in his book criticized Booker T. Washington, a black American leader who was respected by both blacks and whites. Now, Washington felt it was more important that black Americans have food, shelter, and good jobs rather than equality or integration. Booker T. believed that equality would come naturally if blacks proved themselves to be intelligent and hardworking. Now, in a famous 1895 speech in Atlanta, Washington told black people to accept segregation for the time being in exchange for education and jobs. This speech later became known as the Atlanta Compromise. Needless to say, this did not sit right with Du Bois, who felt that black students deserved more. We want our children trained as intelligent human beings should be, he said, and we will fight for all time against any proposal to educate black boys and girls simply as servants and underlings or simply for the use of other peoples. They have a right to know to think, to aspire. Now, as time went on, Washington was disappointed to see that blacks were not being treated any differently. He remained patient. However, Du Bois was convinced that a new approach was necessary. He felt that Washington's acceptance of segregation might have seemed like the right thing to do at one time, but that was no longer the case. Du Bois wanted black Americans to not ask for equal treatment, but demand it. Hence, he encouraged people to protest and take action. The battle between Washington and Du Bois would continue on and on. But Washington had strong supporters with a lot of money, many of whom were white. They considered Du Bois a troublemaker and began to pressure Atlanta University leaders to fire him, threatening to withdraw financial support if they did not. Well, money talks. In 1910, the university gave in and Du Bois was out of a job. However, he wouldn't be without one for long. In May 1909, Du Bois attended a National Negro Conference in New York, which led to the creation of the National Negro Committee, chaired by Oswald Garrison Villiard. Now, the organization was dedicated to campaigning for civil rights, equal voting rights, and equal educational opportunities. The following spring in 1910, at the second National Negro Conference, many of those present created the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP for short. At Du Bois's suggestion, the word colored rather than black was used to include dark-skinned people everywhere. He became the NAACP's Director of Publications and Research, as well as the editor for the NAACP magazine, The Crisis. He accepted the job in the summer of 1910, and after departing from Atlanta University, he moved to the epicenter of the Negro world at the time, Harlem, New York. Now, the first edition of The Crisis was published in November 1910. It was originally subtitled, a record of the darker races, which would remain there from the first edition all the way until Volume 5, Number 4, published in February 1913. In that first edition, Du Bois wrote that the aim of the magazine was to set out those facts and arguments which show the danger of race prejudice, particularly as manifested today toward colored people. 
The crisis was phenomenally successful and its circulation would reach 100,000 in the year 1920. Black American artists drew the covers for the crisis, and Black American authors wrote its poems, stories, and news articles. Du Bois's Men of the Month section featured prominent Black Americans. With this monthly magazine, Du Bois once said, I could discuss the Negro problem and tell white people and colored people just what the NAACP was and what it proposed to do. The 1910s were a productive time for him, even outside of the magazine. In 1911, he attended the first Universal Racist Congress in London, and he published his first novel, The Quest of the Silver Fleece. Two years later, he wrote, produced, and directed a pageant for the stage, The Star of Ethiopia. But as time progressed, he began to have difficulties with other leaders at the NAACP. For one thing, he wanted complete control of the content of the crisis, but Others at the NAACP refused to give up their say. In particular, during 1915 to 1916, some leaders of the NAACP, disturbed by financial losses at the crisis and worried about the inflammatory rhetoric of some of its essays, attempted to oust Du Bois from his editorial position. However, he and his supporters prevailed, and he continued in his role as editor. In 1915, he published The Negro, a general history of black Africans and the first of its kind in English. The book rebutted claims of African inferiority and would come to serve as the basis of much Afrocentric historiography in the 20th century. Furthermore, The Negro predicted unity and solidarity for colored people around the world, and it influenced many who supported the Pan-African movement. That same year, the Atlantic Monthly carried one of his essays, The African Roots of the War, which consolidated his ideas on capitalism, imperialism, and race. In this piece, he argued that the scramble for Africa was at the root of World War I. He also anticipated later communist doctrine by suggesting that wealthy capitalists had pacified white workers by giving them just enough wealth to prevent them from revolting and by threatening them with the competition offered by the low-cost labor of colored workers. The crisis also continued to wage a campaign against lynching, and in 1915, it published an article with a year-by-year record of 2,732 lynchings from 1884 to 1914. The April 1916 edition covered the group lynching of six black Americans in Lee County, Georgia. In the June 1916 issue, the Waco Horror article covered the lynching of Jesse Washington, a mentally impaired 17-year-old black American. Now, Du Bois included photographs of the lynching in the article, and the article broke new ground by utilizing undercover reporting to expose the conduct of local whites in Waco, Texas. The magazine and the skills of its contributors only proved to be growing stronger in providing the truth. Now, in pursuit of the truth, no matter how ugly, he traveled to East St. Louis in the summer of 1917 where there were ongoing riots to report on. Somewhere between 40 and 250 black people were massacred by white people, primarily due to resentment caused by St. Louis Industries hiring black workers to replace striking white workers. His reporting culminated in the article, The Massacre of East St. Louis, published in the September issue of The Crisis. 
Infuriated by the massacre in order to voice the black community's outrage over the riots, he organized the Silent Parade, a march of around 9,000 black people down New York City's Fifth Avenue, the first parade of its kind in New York, and the second instance of black people publicly demonstrating for civil rights. That same year, as the United States prepared to enter World War I in 1917, Du Bois's colleague in the NAACP, Joel Springarn, a white man, was by some accounts Du Bois's best friend. Apparently, though best friends, Du Bois never accepted Springarn referring to him by his first name. Anyway, Springarn established a camp to train black people to serve as officers in the United States Armed Forces. The camp was controversial because some whites felt that black people were not qualified to be officers, and some black people felt that black people should not participate in what they considered a white man's war. Whatever your stance on the very difficult situation at the time, Du Bois supported Spring Arms training camp, but was disappointed when the Army forcibly retired one of its few black officers, Charles Young, on the pretense of ill health. As a part of the deal, the Army agreed to create 1,000 officer positions for black people, but insisted that 250 come from currently enlisted men, men conditioned to taking orders from white people rather than from independent-minded black folks who came from Springarn's camp. In the end, over 700,000 black people enlisted on the first day of the draft, but were subject to discriminatory conditions which prompted vocal protests from Du Bois. And when the war ended, he discovered that the vast majority of black soldiers had been relegated to menial labor as stevedores and laborers during the war. Some units had been armed, and one in particular, the 92nd Division, the Buffalo Soldiers, engaged in combat, but the majority did not come close to being seen as equals. And to make matters worse, he discovered widespread racism in the army and concluded that the army command discouraged black people from joining, discredited the accomplishments of black soldiers, and promoted bigotry. He then turned his back on any hope of an integrated military force where black folks would be treated with any more respect than they received on the streets. Concerning the Harlem Renaissance, he had conflicting emotions. When it first fully emerged in the mid-1920s, his article, A Negro Art Renaissance, celebrated the end of the long hiatus of black people from creative endeavors. Up until then, he had frequently promoted black American artistic creativity in his writings, thus the Harlem Renaissance seemed like a step in the right direction. However, his enthusiasm faltered when he began to theorize that many of the white people visiting Harlem around the time were not there because they wanted to appreciate black art, but rather as a voyeuristic exploitative exploration. He went even further, insisting that, I quote, a black artist is first of all a black artist, and worried that black artists weren't using their art to shed light on black American struggles and causes. And, well, from his view, things continued to get worse. Thus, by the end of 1926, he stopped using the crisis as a way to support the arts. 
Moving forward to the 1930s, the Great Depression struck America and did so with the vicious force of capitalism. Millions of Americans of all races found themselves unemployed and suffering. In Harlem, where Du Bois lived, he witnessed people being evicted from their homes and going hungry, and naturally he felt that something needed to be done. Now, during his years working in and with the NAACP, he began to promote Pan-Africanism, the belief that all people of African descent have a common background and should cooperate with one another. So, during times of hardship, such as with the collapse of the economy and the ensuing Great Depression, he encouraged black people across the entire U.S. to view themselves as one people who could and should strive to achieve equality and justice wherever they lived. He then proposed a new plan, one which encouraged the forming of cooperatives in which black Americans would start their own factories, farms, and businesses, separate from their Caucasian counterparts, if you will. In this society, black people would do the work and black people would share the profits. Well, he published this idea in the crisis, but was met with pushback from other NAACP leaders as they saw his idea as just another form of segregation, while the NAACP's aim was to promote integration. This would be another nail in the coffin separating him from the NAACP, a separation that would arrive sooner rather than later. On a more personal level, W.E.B. Du Bois was highly organized and disciplined. A meticulous planner, he would map out schedules and goals on a large piece of graph paper. Furthermore, throughout his life, he would stick to a regimen which entailed rising from bed at 7.15 and getting to work as soon as possible. He would then work until 5 p.m., eat dinner, and afterwards read newspapers until 7 p.m between 7 and 10 p.m., at which time he would undoubtedly already be in bed, he would read books or socialize. Then in 1933, at age 65, 23 of those years as editor of the crisis, he retired from the NAACP completely. Though at an age where most would choose complete retirement, he never a mere passive follower, would focus on writing some of his most important pieces between 1933 and his death 30 years later. You can definitely expect us to explore these later years of Du Bois' life in a later episode of House of Words. As usual, let's wrap up this episode with a quote from the trailblazer himself. W.E.B. Du Bois. I believe in liberty for all men, the space to stretch their arms and their souls, the right to breathe and the right to vote, the freedom to choose their friends, enjoy the sunshine, and ride on the railroads, uncursed by color, thinking, dreaming, working as they will in a kingdom of beauty and love. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words or 
paypal.me slash house of words podcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page at House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden. 